This sermon was preached by Caleb Bunch, head pastor and church planner of Redeeming Grace Fellowship in Massapequa, New York. Redeeming Grace was planted in 2015 and is seeking to reach central Nassau County with the gospel. You can find sermons from this series and many others at www.rgf.church. Please feel free to distribute this sermon to friends and family, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way. Before we get to where we are today, starting in verse 1 of chapter 2, I think it would be helpful if I give just a little bit of background of what's happened so far in the book of Mark back in chapter 1. Just a few quick bullet points. First of all, this is what we've seen so far in the ministry of Jesus. After the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness, he begins preaching. And the content of his sermons are twofold. He preaches the gospel of God and the message of repentance. But really, those things are the same. And so we see that Jesus, everywhere he goes, begins preaching about the gospel of God and repentance. In other words, he is preaching about himself. And one day Jesus was at the synagogue in Capernaum where he cast out a demon from a man who was probably a regular attender of that synagogue service. He was probably a very big player in the local community. And when Jesus cast the demon out of this person who had been hiding in the midst of them, they begin to see this person is different. Not only is his teaching different, but he has power that normal people don't have. He has authority, divine dominion over the spiritual world. And then we see him go to this house where Peter and Andrew grew up, this little home, and we see him heal this little fever from Peter's mother-in-law. And as he does that, we see that Jesus has authority over the physical world, over sickness, And as time goes on, people realize what Jesus is doing. They bring many sick people to him in Capernaum. This is still the same day that he cast out the demon. Many, many people come to the home and he heals all of them. But the next morning, he doesn't wait for a line to even begin to be created. He leaves before sunrise and he goes out into the wilderness. The disciples have to go find him. And he says that the reason he has left is so that he can go preach at the next towns, for that is why he came out. He desired to continue spreading his message about himself. And in today's text, we see Jesus return to Capernaum for the first time since that day when he cast out the demon. And since that day when he began to heal. What happens in between is very important. There is a man with leprosy. To have leprosy is basically a death sentence. And this man who has leprosy is healed by Jesus. And Jesus tells him, don't tell anyone what I've done for you. But instead, what we see at the very end of chapter 1 is that this man who had leprosy, disobeys the orders of Jesus Christ, and he goes out and he tells everyone, Jesus has healed me. And it says that Jesus then could not even enter a town. He was so popular that every time he tried to go to a place, he would be swarmed with people. So now, we see him for the first time re-entering Capernaum. And that's where our story begins. And today's text begins the first of what are known as the five Capernaum controversies. You see, the religious leaders of Israel did not like Jesus. And we're going to see, starting in this passage, why they do not like Jesus, and what is it that gets under their skin? What frustrates them about Jesus' ministry? 
So that's a very important thing that we'll see starting here in chapter 2. So in chapter 1, we saw Jesus display an authority over the spiritual world, and we saw his display of authority over the physical world. But what we see Jesus do in today's text is exponentially more personal and infinitely more valuable for these individuals. So this story takes place most likely in the same home that we saw Jesus in previously, this home that Peter and Andrew would have grown up in, back in Capernaum. And today I would like to look at these 12 verses that we are, we are coming from, uh, from three angles. First of all, I would like to consider the belief in action. And then I would like to consider unbelief in action. And then I would like to consider forgiveness in action. Let's start with belief in action. Let me read for you once again verses 3 through 5. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic, carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, My son, your sins are forgiven. First, let's just consider the oddity of this situation, the abnormality, the unusual nature of this situation. Jesus is preaching in this house. He is teaching about this good news in this house. And it says that it's crowded. Nobody can even get to him. And so what do they decide to do? They decide to rip the roof off the building to get the guy inside. Jesus has been completely swarmed by the crowd. And so getting to Jesus while carrying a man on a mat is basically impossible. I've heard this described as trying to go doorbuster shopping on Black Friday with a double stroller. You know, I've got three kids. That's, that's impossible. That's what these men are experiencing here. They can't get in. The house is completely full. And when it says the door, the word that is used here for door is actually the word that is usually used for the entry to a courtyard. So what this probably means is not only is the interior of the room where this man, Jesus, is teaching and preaching, not only is it filled, but it seems like the entire courtyard is literally overflowing with people so that they can't even maneuver their way in and around the people in the courtyard of this home. So they are... Stuck outside with this man who desires to be healed by Jesus. So enter this paralytic. This man had not yet encountered Jesus. I say that because if he had encountered Jesus, the last time Jesus was in Capernaum, then Jesus would have healed him. Jesus healed all who come to him, we see in the end of chapter 1. So this man has not yet seen Jesus, but he is brought to Jesus by four friends who have either heard of the message of Jesus... Or have personally seen him. So these men, these four men, faithfully carry out the mission to take him to Jesus. And I want you to notice that it says in verse 5, Jesus saw their faith. Faith is not a tangible, visible thing. But faith, the definition of faith, is active trust. And so if you are truly a person who has faith, you should be able to display that. That's why James says in James 2.18, I will show you my faith by my works. Your works don't create faith, but your works display whether or not your faith in Christ is genuine. Whether or not you are living out a life dependent upon Him. Uh, presumably these men had heard the news about Jesus preaching about 
repentance. And so when Jesus says that he sees their faith, he's also reading their hearts. We know that he sees what is in them. But I don't think these men knew fully who Jesus was, just as no one else seems to know fully who Jesus is. The only people in the book of Mark who ever truly grasp the nature of who Jesus is and what he is here to do is God the Father, when he says, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased, and the demons who are terrified that Jesus has come to destroy them. Everyone else is kind of confused on the nature of Jesus' work on earth. So I don't think they fully knew what Jesus was doing or who he was, but they did act on the faith that they had, that this man can heal. What I would like to ask you to do today as a church is to live out your faith. If you truly have faith, to live it out. And here's a simple way to do so. Carry people to Jesus. That's what these four men do. They simply carry someone to Jesus. And what do I mean when I say that? You can't force someone to be a believer. You can't do that. But what I am saying is, carry people to Jesus by inviting them to church. Bring them to places where they will hear the message of the gospel. Secondly, what I would like to highlight is, I saw in your announcements that there is a uh, Christmas Eve service here. People that don't usually go to church will sometimes come to a holiday service like Christmas Eve or Easter. Please invite them. Even if they've said no every time you've invited them before, we still have in our culture some of these religious rumblings that float through the hearts of individuals. So if you say, I would love for you to come visit us on a Christmas Eve to our church, maybe they'll say yes, and they will come and they will hear the gospel. So live out your faith and do so by carrying people to Jesus. But I would also like to highlight and note that these guys did not give up when it just became a little bit more difficult. So don't give up at the first sign of difficulties. These people ran into a wall of a crowd, this multitude of people who were blocking them from getting to Jesus. Don't give up at the first sign of difficulty. We don't know what the conversation between these five individuals, the paralytic and the four people carrying him, we don't know what they were talking about, but I can, I can guess the conversation may have gone something like this. Oh man, this is a bummer. Hey buddy, you know, we really tried. We, we got as close as we could, but you know, Jesus is just crowded. We can't get to him, so maybe, maybe later, maybe next time. No, that's not what it sounded like at all. I'm sure because these men were so dedicated to the idea of getting this man to Jesus that they climbed up onto the roof. I don't think we think about how difficult this would probably be to get this guy on his mat up onto the roof, rip the roof off, and then lower him down through it. This was a messy procedure. But they were dedicated to doing it. I would like to note for just a kind of this is kind of a side note. You can keep this in your mind when you're reading through the book of Mark in your own Bible studies. The crowd here is the enemy in some sense, right? They're, it's, they're, they're blocking him from Jesus. In the book of Mark, uh, the word crowd is used 40 times in the first 11 chapters. And every single time, it's used in a negative way. Either because they are blocking people from getting to Jesus, or because they have become overwhelming to Jesus, or because Jesus is in danger of how quickly their opinion will turn. It's always negative. And so Mark here is presenting them as negative. And these men, they go right through the barrier. They decide they're not going to be stopped by this wall of people. 
One commentator, James Edwards, puts it this way. He says, these crowds, they constitute outsiders who either stand in ambivalence or opposition to Jesus. Being part of the crowd around Jesus is never the same as being a disciple of Jesus. And I think that's important for us to remember. Just because you are here today, just because you're part of the crowd, does not mean that you are a disciple of Jesus Christ. So, consider that. Consider your own heart before the Lord. But I'd also like to highlight that the crowd is not the only barrier here. Allow me briefly to explain what this roof would have been like. Let me consider ancient architecture for a moment. These houses would have been built with large wooden beams across the top. Usually the outside is made of stone or of clay with a lot of uh, wood inside of it. But the top would have had beams running one direction. And then the other direction, there would be branches and brush and a bunch of sticks that they would put on top. And then they would cover it in clay and in mud and they would roll it flat. And houses then rarely had windows that were large because windows create a sense of danger. People can get in through them. Or create a lack of safety from the elements that come in outside, whether it's heat or cold or rain. So usually people didn't have windows, or if they did, they were very small. But also that means that there's a very limited amount of light inside of the house. So if you wanted to read or do something of that nature, you really needed to be by the doorway or on the roof. Also, when it did rain, which it didn't rain often in Capernaum, but when it did, it would get very musty and disgusting in these houses. So if you wanted to spend time with the family, you usually did so on the roof, where you can see one another, where you can enjoy one another. And rarely did people just hang out inside of the house. So, when they go up onto the roof, this is like the patio of of the house, and they begin tearing through this. It wouldn't have been something where they could just lift up a tile like one of these above your heads and remove it. They would have been having to pound holes in it. And as they're doing so, imagine the people inside the house. There would have been dirt and dust and sticks falling all over people. They would not have been very happy about this. But they lower the man down to Jesus, going through every single barrier. They did not give up. They kept trying to get this man to Jesus because they saw his need. What are your barriers that you experience when you do evangelism? You have them. You've encountered them. I've talked to many people, especially uh, the people that I I have in my church, that uh, they say that it's not something they are able to do is to share their faith at their own job. Their job will not allow them to speak about their faith in the professional workplace. But you know what is legal? Take somebody out to lunch and share the gospel with them at lunch. There's no law against going to TGI Fridays. You can do that. Right, And share the gospel with them. Try your best to overcome the barriers that have been set in place before you. If your family has told you that they don't want you to preach the gospel to them, you know, be careful, be cautious in the way that you approach them. But one thing that, uh, that is, is very easy to do is just write a letter. Uh, tell them the things that you appreciate about them. Tell them the things that you're thankful for about them. And include in that what you're most thankful for, and that is Jesus Christ and what He has done for you. Overcome the barriers that are put in front of you. Don't give up so easily as, as we often do when we share the gospel. I tried it. It didn't work. I'm done. No, that's not how these men treated uh, getting this paralytic to Jesus. That is not how we should treat getting people to Jesus. Consider the famous quote from Charles Spurgeon. He says, If sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our dead bodies. And if they perish, let them perish with our arms wrapped around their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, 
Let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions. And let no one go unwarned and unprayed for. Let's have a sense of urgency about sharing the gospel with others. These men understood that there was urgency in getting this man, the paralytic, to Jesus. Why wouldn't they just come back the next day? They wouldn't come back the next day because last time Jesus was in Capernaum, people presumably did come back the next day and Jesus had left. He had gone. He had disappeared. Where are you, Jesus? When the disciples find him, it says, everyone is looking for you. And only the disciples were able to find them because they knew where he would go to pray. They wouldn't come back the next day because they understood there was an urgency to get him there as quickly as possible. Now, we know Jesus is not going anywhere. He is in heaven at the right hand of the Father. He is there for eternity to receive worship. But what we do know is there is an urgency because people are dying. Every one of us in this room is closer to death than we were when I started preaching this sermon. The people that you share the gospel with, don't think that maybe two or three years from now I'll get a chance. They might not have two or three years. We need to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ with a sense of urgency. Get the word to the lost. <clears throat> now I want you to consider one, one more thing about these four men, and that's that what they did is very important. Their act of getting this man to Jesus, carrying him there, is a very important thing. But they're not the heroes of the story. Jesus is the hero of the story. In this picture, what we see with him carrying these four men to Jesus, this is recorded in all three of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. All three of them tell this story, and in none of them do they linger on these four men. They don't focus on their accomplishments or their efforts or their ingenuity. No, they don't put the emphasis on them at all. The emphasis is all on Jesus, because who is the hero of this story? Of course, those four men were important, and they, they did an amazing thing, but the focus is where, where it should be, exactly where it should be. It's on Jesus Christ, the one to whom they were trying to get this person. If you tell your testimony of how God saved you, and it's all about you, you've missed the point of your testimony. Because ultimately, even though it's about what God has done in your life, it's truly about Jesus and what He has done. He is the one working in you. Likewise, if you are very boastful about your evangelistic efforts, look what I've done, look how many people I've brought to church, look how many people have come to know the Lord through my ministry, and, and some people who are great pastors do this. But if that's the attitude that you have, then you're missing the point because you're not the hero of that story either. Jesus is. When we bring the good news of the gospel to an individual, we are not saving them. Jesus through his blood that he shed on the cross, is the one who saves, and him alone. We don't want to make a name for ourselves. We are not out to make ourselves known. These four men that carried him, their names are not recorded anywhere in Scripture for us to remember. Let me just tell you a quick story about this man named George Whitfield. He's a very important missionary in American history. He is a person who changed the culture of America in an incredible way. The reason that people talk about uh, the religious history of America in large part has to do with the fact that he came and, and preached during what was known as the First Great Awakening. And this man, George Whitfield, was a missionary from England, primarily here to the United States. And at one point, he was on mission, and he didn't go back to England for roughly two years. And while he was gone people started circulating the rumor that he died. 
And so he hadn't died, and it was very awkward when he got back home, and they had replaced him. He was the president of this ministry that he had started, and he was in charge of all these different organizations. And when he got back, it was very you know, shocking to the people, oh, you're alive. Well, now what do we do? Do we fire these guys and put you back in charge? That was a, legitimate, a very legitimate question. You know, it, you started this ministry, what do you want us to do? You know, Mr. George. And his quote was well remembered by those who were in his hearing, And I think it's an incredible statement about how the heart of a missionary should be. How the heart of an evangelist should be. He said, let the name of Whitfield perish, but Christ be glorified. As evangelists, people who are going to sow the seed, people are sharing the gospel with the lost. Our goal is not to make a kingdom for ourselves or to make a name for ourselves. Every single crown that we gain here on earth, we're going to lay it right back at the feet of Jesus. That is the focal point. Jesus is the hero of this story. So if you have faith in Jesus, put your faith to action by bringing people, by carrying them to Jesus, but give all glory at all times to Jesus. Now what I would like to do is to consider the opposite of what happens here. Jesus sees faith in this individual and these people, but he also sees unbelief in the room. Let me read for you once again Mark chapter Uh, uh, 2 verses 5 through 8. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, My son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there, questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, he said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Let's just pause there for a moment. Who are these scribes? These scribes essentially functioned as lawyers. They were people who knew the Bible well. You have to remember in this time, it was likely that only 10% of the, the population were literate. And so when we look into these communities, the people who knew the law the best were the scribes. Who It was literally their job to know the Old Testament. And you have to understand also, their system of government is very different than ours. Their entire uh, political structure, their entire judicial structure particularly, relied on the Old Testament. So if you had a problem with another individual, you went to the law. And if you have a problem or a confrontation with another individual that you need to find a lawyer for, here you would go to a lawyer, there you would go to the scribes. And so they functioned in a very similar role to what we would consider Uh, a lawyer. However, when Jesus shows up back in chapter 1, and he begins preaching, they notice a distinction between Jesus and these scribes. These are probably the exact same scribes that the synagogue people were speaking about when they said, he doesn't speak like those scribes. He speaks as one with authority. So they're probably already not happy because the people are considering Jesus a better teacher than they. And so, here we see Jesus reading their hearts. But it's interesting, he doesn't focus on what's going on in the heart of the paralytic. I mean, think about it. Jesus just said to this man, your sins are forgiven. And he could have read his uh, thoughts, read his spirit, and he could have spoken that to the entire room. What was that guy thinking? Hey, Jesus, I didn't come here for my sins. I came here for my legs. Or maybe he was shocked and amazed and thankful. Wow, something even better than my legs being healed. My sins are wiped away. 
We don't know what he was thinking. The Bible just doesn't tell us. We don't know what the disciples were thinking. I'm guessing that Peter and Simon are probably looking up at the roof and saying, Dude, are you going to fix that? That's my roof. But Jesus focuses in instead on these scribes who are looking on, these people who are uh, the religious leaders of Capernaum. And he looks at them and he tells everyone what's going on in their heart. They're completely silent in this passage, which, if you're going through the book of Mark reading it, don't get used to that, because the scribes are rarely ever silent. They always have something to say to Jesus. They're always prodding him or arguing with him. But here, I think they're silent because they're shocked. They're in complete awe of the fact that anyone would have the audacity to say, your sins are forgiven. These scribes know the Old Testament better than anyone in the general public. And they are very aware that what Jesus is doing and the ministry that he has been doing in casting out demons and healing people, they know that this can only come by the hand of God. If you want evidence that they know that, you can consider Jesus' words with Nicodemus in John chapter 3. Remember, that conversation had happened long before this event here in Capernaum. Jesus spoke with Nicodemus, and Nicodemus said to Jesus, he said, Rabbi... We know that you're a teacher come from God. Well, that's shocking. Nicodemus, the one who comes to Jesus in unbelief, looks at him and says, We know you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. That's John chapter 3, verse 2. They knew these signs Jesus was performing could only have been accomplished if he had come from God. Yet, they don't believe that Jesus is from God. They're unwilling to accept that. Now, we might look at this and say, well, I can understand their initial position. None of the Old Testament prophets ever said, your sins are forgiven. Moses had never said, your sins are forgiven. Elijah had never said, your sins are forgiven. So how is it that this man would say, your sins are forgiven? I think we can probably understand their initial position. However, when Jesus backs up his claims with proof they still don't respond in faith. Instead, they respond in anger. Remember I told you this at the beginning of five different confrontations that occur back-to-back in Capernaum? Here we don't see their anger very much, but over time, we're going to see they continue to have this anger build up in their heart, this frustration with Jesus. And we'll see that play out until the time of Jesus' death on the cross. Now here they accuse him of blasphemy because they understand that to say that you can forgive sins, is to say that you are equal with God. If you're out there talking to people who are not believers, you will often come across this critique they try to make against Christianity. Jesus never claimed to be God. How is it that you think Jesus is God? He never said he was God. Well, that's what the Pharisees thought Jesus was saying. When Jesus says that he can forgive sins, they begin immediately to think in their hearts, this man is blaspheming. What does that mean? Well, we have to understand that according to the Jewish writings of the time, there are really three different kinds of blasphemy. First, there's the mocking of the law of God. If you mock God's law and you you scoff at it, you make fun of it, that's blasphemy. And that'll get you in trouble and maybe even severe punishment. Maybe even be ostracized from the synagogue. But it's not a death penalty type sin. It's blasphemy against the law of God is bad in their eyes, but not the worst thing that you can do. Well, the second kind of blasphemy is far worse, which is claiming equality. I'm sorry, mocking God directly, which is when you would look at God and you would say something terrible about him. Well, if you did that, they believed you were worthy of the death penalty. 
you are worthy of death if you point the finger at God and begin to mock him. Well, then there's the third, and they would consider this even worse, and that's to claim equality with God or to claim to be God. That, in their mind, is the ultimate form of blasphemy, and I think that we can agree with them. If anyone but Jesus makes this claim, that is a huge blasphemy, a major statement against the true God. So when they look at Jesus, they understand Jesus is claiming equality here with God. Let me explain for just a moment here um, how this looks in the modern world. Just, just bear with me for a second. Everyone is okay with Christians when we do good things. Coat drives, giving food to the hungry, helping the poor. Everyone's fine with that, right? There's never an issue with that. But the second you begin to proclaim the, exclusi- the exclusivity of Jesus, that Jesus Christ is the one and only way to heaven... There's going to be problems. People don't want anything to do with that. They're enraged by that. Here, we see that these people begin to get very angry. And the world is just like the scribes are here. The world is full of unbelief. Unbelief in Jesus is not cured by giving people proof. It's not cured by giving people evidence. Consider these people. These are the scribes. And Jesus is right in front of them. If you can prove Jesus was a historical figure, that's not going to change somebody's unbelief. If you can prove that Jesus was considered by his contemporaries to be a miracle worker, that's not going to provide faith. It's not going to overcome unbelief. Even if you can prove that Jesus claimed to be God. That's not going to change the heart of an individual. Why? Because Jesus does it in this room, and the response of the scribes is not faith, but is a rejection of Jesus Christ. Also, I would like to note that you are not going to overcome belief in others merely by living a good life, by having morals, by doing the right thing in front of them. This is a very common kind of evangelism tactic that's spoken about nowadays. Just go live your life, be a good person. Show Jesus to them by the way that you live. And yes, do that. That's not wrong, but do it also by speaking the good news to them. Because your, your good works, if you think that's going to win someone over, that's going to overcome their unbelief, you're mistaken. Because your good works don't compare to Jesus. You're still imperfect. Jesus is perfect, and he's standing in the room with them, and they look at Jesus and they respond in unbelief. It's an incredible thing, but what we have to understand here is that the only way that unbelief can ever be overcome is by God doing a radical miracle in the heart of an individual. Consider John chapter 1, verses 12 through 13. It says, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And now in this verse, what he does is he pulls back the curtain of eternity, and he looks at what God is doing, and it says, Who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of of man, but of God. You're not going to convince somebody or prove to them. You can do your best to discuss those things with them. And please, learn your apologetics. Learn how to defend the faith. Live out a moral life. Be a godly example before the world. However, you must know that the only way these people are truly going to change, truly come to know Jesus Christ, is if God does a miraculous work in their heart. Allow me to offer a brief application brief but vital for believers here don't be discouraged when you share the gospel with others and they just don't want anything to do with it your duty is to be the messenger who faithfully carries out that message who gives that good news 
And by the way, one of the reasons I love being a pastor is I get to do that all the time. Not just in the pulpit, but people come over to my house so that I can tell them the good news. That's the best part about being a Christian, is worshiping God and then telling others about God and what He's done for them. But when they reject that, and they will, and for most of you, you probably experienced that, don't be discouraged in that. Know that God is the one who must overcome their unbelief. Also know that Paul... He's the one who planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God is the one who does the work. He brings the increase. Let me also give an application here for those of you who are in the room who are unbelievers. I don't know most of you here, which is really exciting to me, to be able to preach the good news to those who, who I just don't know at all. But if you're here today and you don't know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, if you have not repented of your sins and placed all of your faith for your eternal life in Jesus Christ then please listen carefully. Because right now, you're like the scribes in this story. You have unbelief in your heart. What is it that you disbelieve about Jesus? If you are not yet a believer, what is it that you're rejecting about who He is? Now, I also want to just ask you, please, if you are not a believer in Jesus Christ, listen very carefully to everything that I'll say from this point to the end. Because everything I've said so far is true. Everything I've said so far is good. Uh, everything that I've said so far is important for Christians to, to know and do. But it's not the point of this story at all. The point of this story is forgiveness of sin. And if you're here today and you don't know Jesus Christ or you have unbelief in your heart, please know that there is forgiveness available to you. You might be standing here and saying, or sitting here and saying, I don't think so. You don't know how bad I am. I talked to a friend just a few days ago who told me his testimony and he said, I just thought I was so far gone, nobody could forgive me. There's forgiveness available in Jesus Christ. Maybe you're here and you say, I just don't want forgiveness from Jesus Christ. Well, listen very carefully uh, to everything else that I have to say, because this is the point of today's message, of this text. Let me read for you once again, starting in verse 5, and I'll go through the end of the chapter. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, My son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes are sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic? Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. Let's consider now, just for the last few minutes, forgiveness in action. These men, they lower the paralytic down right in front of Jesus. And Jesus, he sees the physical state of this person. He sees that there is a physical need. You would, you would absolutely be aware that this man cannot walk. By, by looking at him, by the fact that he's laying on a mat, by the fact that they were prodding and poking and pushing to get him down through this hole in the ceiling, there's something physically wrong with him. And Jesus, instead of healing him immediately of his physical state, instead looks past that and heals the most important thing 
which is his spiritual state, his standing before God. Because you see, the effects of sin are eternal. The effects of health are temporary. When you die, those things are gone. But the effects of sin last forever. The implications are eternal damnation and hell forever. Sin is man's greatest illness. Consider these words by John MacArthur. He says, ultimately, God does not send people to hell because of sin. And if that's all he said, that would be terribly wrong. But he says, but because of unforgiven sin. Because all of us are sinners, but we must be forgiven if we are to avoid hell and to experience eternity with God forever in heaven. He continues by saying, hell is populated by people whose sins were never forgiven. This forgiveness forgiveness is much better than casting out a demon. It's much better than healing someone's physical needs. And this is the point when Jesus points out to the scribes their unbelief in their heart, what they are saying in their heart. But notice Jesus does not say the scribes are wrong. He doesn't say, yeah, other people can forgive. It's not just God. No, what he's saying is, you're right, only God can forgive. And let me, let me explain to you for just a moment why only God can forgive sin. This is a very important thing to grasp because ultimately your sin has offended God far more than it's offended anyone else or hurt anyone else. This is why David can say in Psalm 51, against you and you alone have I sinned. Think about what David had done. David, the king of Israel, who was supposed to be the moral and upright example for the people, who lead them in battle before the Lord, this man stays home from war. Uh, This man manipulates this young lady into uh, an immoral affair with him. And then when he is afraid of being found out because she's pregnant, he seeks to cover it up. And when that doesn't work, he has her husband killed on the front lines of the battle. That's messed up! Like, we get used to that, but that's messed up! And I look at that and say, how can you say, David, that against you and you alone have I sinned to God? Did he not sin against Uriah and Bathsheba? Did he not sin against the people that he was supposed to be ruling over? Yet he can look and he can say, against you and you alone have I sinned. Why is that? Because ultimately, your sin is primarily against God. Note that a third party can't forgive you for that kind of sin. So today, if I leave from Maranatha in my parking spot that I'm not sure if I'm supposed to be in, and I back up recklessly and smash into Daniel's car. When I do that, I owe Daniel. Now, Pastor Rob can't come to me and say, Caleb, you're forgiven. Right? He can't do that. Why can't he do that? Because I don't owe Pastor Rob anything. He is, I've not done anything to him. I've, I've damaged the car that belongs to Daniel. And so, when I back into that car, I owe him... So the only opportunity, the only response that he really has is to either forgive me or to demand a payment, right? But Rob can't demand either of those things. I can't pay you and and restore that. And I also can't be forgiven by you. And so the scribes rightfully understand only God can forgive sins because it is ultimately and primarily against God and God alone that we have sinned. So Jesus responds by asking this brilliant question. He says, what's more difficult to say? What is more difficult to say? Your sins are forgiven or rise? Is it more difficult to forgive sins or to heal them? But I asked three people that, I, that are believers, that I'm friends with, that, that know the Bible pretty well. I asked three people this question concerning this text 
uh, as I was preparing the sermon. I said, which is more difficult to say? And all three of them were confused as they were trying to put together a response to this question. They, they had a hard time responding. It, it really tripped them up. And here's the reason they got confused. Because Jesus does not say, which of these things is more difficult to do? They're both impossible for a person to do, right? You can't heal someone and you can't forgive someone. God must do that. Right? Jesus doesn't ask them which is more difficult to do, but which is more difficult to say. In other words, what he's saying here is it's easy to say your sins are forgiven. You don't have to prove it. Let me uh, illustrate it in this way. On multiple occasions in the last 10 years that I've been involved in ministry, I've been able to go to the hospital uh, to visit people who are sick and sometimes people who are literally on their deathbed. And in, in doing that, I've encountered on multiple occasions uh, Roman Catholic priests who will be there in the building to perform last rites, either uh, for someone in that area or in some cases for the person that I'm there visiting. And they perform last rites. Part of this is not all that they do, but part of what they do in last rites is they read or quote these words. They say, God, the Father of mercies, through the death and resurrection of His Son, has reconciled the world to Himself and sent the Holy Spirit among us for the forgiveness of sins. Through the ministry of the church, may God give you pardon and peace. Now, everything so far is okay. I mean, we can, we can work with that, right? Here's where it gets really soured. Then they say, these Roman Catholic priests, they will say, I absolve you of sins. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You can't do that. You can't absolve their sins. Absolving is the same as forgiving. It's erasing them, making it like they were never there. No, you can't do that. Only God can forgive sins. But you know what I've never seen one of these men do? I've never seen them in a room with a person who is dying of cancer say, Rise. Go home. You're healed. You don't have to worry about this cancer. Unplug yourself from the machines. Just get up and go. You know why they can't do that? Because they don't have the authority to do that. They don't have the power to do that. And so which is easier to say? It's easy to say your sins are forgiven. It's really difficult to say, rise, take up your bed and go home. Because there is immediately an opportunity to disprove that. If you don't have that power or authority to say that, people will immediately look at you and say, that person's a fraud or that person's insane. He has delusions of grandeur about his own power. No, if you can't say to them, rise, take your bed and walk, you also cannot say to them, your sins are forgiven. Here, Jesus says to them, it's more difficult to say the latter. It's more difficult to say, rise, take your bed and walk. But by proving that he can do one, he proves that he does the other. That's why he turns and he says, so that you may know. So that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He turns and looks at the paralytic and he says, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. Maranatha, I have good news. I have good news for you today. Jesus can forgive sins. I have good news. Jesus does forgive sins. How is it that Jesus could forgive this man of his sins? How can he do that? Do you, do you know how he's able to do that? Because Jesus knows that in just a few short years, literally probably less than two years from this point, he would be walking up a hill to a cross where he would carry that man's sin to be paid for. He's not excusing it. He's not saying, well, this never happened. No, he's admitting the fact that it occurred, and he is going to carry that sin to the cross and pay for it. 
If you are here today and you think that you're too far gone, that God can't forgive you, let me tell you the good news. Jesus Christ came and died. And he didn't die because he deserved it. Unlike you and I, he did not deserve anything that he experienced on that cross. Yet he bore our sins in his body on the tree. The Old Testament declared that this day was coming. Micah chapter 7 verse 19 says, He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. For people who know they're sinners, that is a good word. That is good news. In Psalm chapter 103 verse 12 it says, As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Christians, this is good news. Unbelievers, this is good news. There is forgiveness. Jesus came and bore our sins. In Isaiah 53, 5, it says, He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed. Crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with His wounds we are healed. Let me just close with these final exhortations. First to the unbelievers in the room. Please don't leave this place today without speaking to me or to Pastor Rob, or anyone you've seen up here on stage today, we desire to tell you the good news about Jesus Christ. He has paid for sin. He came to save sinners, like you and like me. And for those who are believers, I just want to encourage you to respond like the crowd responded here. Be amazed at Jesus. They look at Jesus and they say, we've never seen anything like this before. We've never seen anything like this before. These people are from Capernaum. They saw Jesus cast out a demon. They saw Jesus heal people's bodies. Why do they say they've never seen anything like this before? Because he forgave their sin. He forgave this man's sin. They had never seen anyone's sin be wiped away. Every day that you look in the mirror, if you are a Christian, you can have the same awe. He wiped away my sin? Why would he do that? How could he do that for... A wretch like me. Be amazed at the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ. That he came for us. If you have been forgiven, let the redeemed of the Lord say so. Declare your king to those who do not yet bow the knee. Share this good news with others. Go out and live in light of the grace of God. And don't forget the miracle of your own new birth. Let's pray. God in heaven, we are amazed. We are amazed. You sent your son to die for us. Lord, as we are in this Christmas season now, Lord, we, we, we celebrate the fact that Jesus came. Don't let us ever get used to the idea that Jesus came to die for us. Let us be constantly in awe of the fact that you would love us to that extent. Let us see our sin for what it is. For rebellion and aggression against you. Lord, please let us see the disgusting nature of it. And let us see that even though that is who we were, Lord, you came and died for the ungodly in your Son. Father, we pray, Lord, that you would help us to know him, help us to be more like him. In the precious name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the sermon from Doctrines of Grace Church Planners. If you would like to learn more about Doctrines of Grace Church Planners, or support our church planning efforts in the New York City area, 
please visit www.dg-cp.org.